For Maverick LAPD homicide detective Harry Bosch, the body in the drain pipe at Mulholland Dam is more than another anonymous statistic. This one is personal, because the murdered man was a fellow Vietnam Tunnel rat who had fought side by side with him in a hellish underground war. Now Bosch is about to relive the horror of Nam, from a dangerous maze of blind alleys to a daring criminal heist beneath the city. His survival instincts will once again be tested to their limit, pitted against enemies inside his own department, and forced to make the agonizing choice between justice and vengeance. Bosch goes on the hunt for a killer whose true face will shock him. Warning: The Thin Blue Line, Harry Bosch, contains adult content. Harry and others use profanity, adult language, and discuss adult topics. One more warning. This podcast may contain spoilers. I must stress this for this chapter and the entire series of Harry Bosch, so please proceed with extreme caution. Part 1, Sunday, May 20th. The boy couldn't see in the dark, but he didn't need to. Experience and long practice told him it was good. Nice and even, smooth strokes, moving the whole arm, gently rolling his wrist. Keep the marble moving, no runs, beautiful. He heard the hiss of the escaping air and could sense the rolling of the marble. They were sensations that were comforting to him. The smell reminded him of the sock. Hello, and welcome to the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch. My name is Philip Parker, and I'm a retired police detective, and joining me is my baby brother, Alan Parker, who is also a retired vice officer. Hi, this is Alan. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget, please give us a five-star rating. We're not above bribing. Feel free to reach out to us anytime at thinbooline underscore Harry Bosch on Twitter, and follow us on our Facebook page as well. As always, thanks again for listening. On our premiere episode, we will, we will be diving deep into the world of Harry Bosch, the Black Echo. Guys, please pay attention to this closely. While part one, Sunday, May 20th, is our, the primary subject matter for the day, there might be spoiler alerts. I just keep telling you that. So if you have not finished this series or have been in depth into the Harry Bosch world, then we're, uh, you might get some spoiler, uh, some spoilers, so we want to make sure we give you enough advance uh, warning about that. Well, great. Now that we got all those bullshit warnings out of the way, let's just jump right into part one of The Black Echo. Let's open up the murder book and turn a page to the chronological record so that we can do an investigative summary of the information gathered thus far in this chapter. A young graffiti artist works in the early morning hours near a reservoir and hides in the bushes when he hears approach of a truck along the access road. A few hours later, Los Angeles police detective Harry Bosch is awakened by his death sergeant who says a dead body has been found at the Mulholland Dam 30 feet inside a pipe. Bosch surveys the crime scene and crawls inside to confirm the death and looks for evidence. When the body's brought out, there's no scratches to indicate dragging and nothing in the victim's pocket. 
Larry Sakai, the coroner's technician, observes the index finger of the victim's left hand appear to be broken post-death. Sakai also finds one fresh needle mark and assumes the cause of death is a hot load. Bosch recognizes a tattoo on the victim of a Vietnam tunnel rat and asks his partner Egger to check the computer for Meadows Williams, born around 1950. Utilizing this information, Egger retrieves an address for Meadows. Egger questions Bosch on how he knows Meadows, and Bosch advises Egger that he and Meadows were tunnel rats together in Vietnam. Bosch further advises to proceed to Meadows' home for further investigation. Before leaving the crime scene, Bosch convinces Sakai to request the first cut the next day. As Bosch prepares to leave the scene, he noticed some graffiti depicting three letters S-H-A. Upon arrival, Bosch conferred with Egger that the neighbor next door stated that she hadn't seen anyone around since the day before yesterday. This witness also advised that the person depicted in the photo Egger showed was known as Fields, not Meadows. Egger further advises that Meadows' home was unlocked upon his arrival. Egger also discovered that Meadows' apartment was hurriedly searched. During Bosch's investigative sweep, he finds a shattered pictured frame on the floor. It holds a yellow photo taken in Vietnam, 1969-1970, of seven tunnel rats to include Bosch, shirtless, proudly displaying tattoos. A pawn ticket for an antique bracelet, gold with Jay Inlay, fell out of the picture frame. Bosch bags it, concluding that the only need to get Meadows' corpse out of the apartment can account for the hastily search that missed the ticket. Bosch conducts a ride by the pawn shop. He was not expecting to find it open, but learned that it had been freshly robbed. Bosch made contact with the owner of the Happy Hawker Pawn Shop, Mr. Obana who was waiting for the detectives and was disappointed that Bosch wants to see him about a pawn bracelet. Bosch requests to see the bracelet concerning the pawn ticket. After a brief search, Obana informs Bosch that the fine and valuable piece had been stolen. Obana produces a Polaroid of the bracelet, recalling the transaction and recognizing a photo of Meadow's dead face that Bosch had showed him. Bosch responds to the communication center to pick up a copy of the 911 call concerning Meadow's. While in the building, Bosch responds to the famed RHD, also known as Robbery Homicide Division Office, to utilize their computers to continue the Meadows investigation. Information gleaned from this search resulted in the discovery of a connection between the bracelet and a burglary of the Westland National Bank. Bosch didn't have any recollection concerning this burglary because of his one-month suspension for the Dollmaker case and proceeded to call Joel Bremer at the Times newspaper. Bremer confirmed that Bosch's suspicion that the burglary was a tunnel job and that the FBI had the lead on the investigation. While still at RHD, Bosch receives notice that the autopsy of Meadows was being conducted today, not tomorrow. Once he responded to the morgue, Bosch met Dr. Jose Salazar, who liked mysteries and decided to perform the autopsy now. Salazar confirmed that the broken finger was post-death. Salazar also informed Bosch that the marks on Meadows' chest were from a stun gun and agreed with Bosch that Meadows was tortured. In route home, Bosch stopped by the Times to pick up a package from Brenner that contained all the news clips concerning the Westland National Bank caper. A review of these articles revealed that more than $2 million worth of jewelry was stolen. These articles also confirmed that a tunnel was utilized to gain access to the bank vault. Bosch remembers a time in the tunnels that brought him to tears as a tunnel rat. 
it's time for us to uh, hit the street and do an investigative summary of this chapter thus far. Quick question, though. Question for you, Phil. So are we allowed to give constructive criticism on Amazon for how they screwed this particular book or no? I say, yeah. Okay, just just quick note to the audience. I think it's really cheesy that this book only had a reference in the show as a movie on a poster and that's yeah. it. It's like, how do you start a series without the first book and you only get a cameo via poster? All right, had well, no, no, let's, let's, let's keep talking about that because, I mean, this book just sets up so much, right? At least in my, my view and, you know, comparing it to Game of Thrones and hell, even what Amazon just did with the Jack Ryan series. I mean, I just watched that and they did a phenomenal job on that. Well, I mean, all right, to piggyback on what you said, the way they approached the Jack Ryan thing by establishing that character development, setting the relationship between uh, James Earl Jones and uh, Harrison Ford, it's like, well, how do those two get in contact? Now we see how that's right. done. You, you now have laid the groundwork for tons of content for years and years to come. I thought they were premature with the approach to Harry Bosch yeah. by jumping literally like four books ahead. Right. Like, what the well, fuck was that and, about? And, okay, so since we're going down this road, I'm actually was feeling as though they didn't give it a chance to develop correctly because the content, the character, the storyline, while we're doing this podcast is there. All of it's there. Yeah. And I didn't. Yeah, it writes itself. They, yeah, I don't, I don't feel like they trusted the, the, the material. So. Yeah. Or their audience. Or the audience, because, you know, we gave it, we, you know, we listened to it, we watched it. So, and here we, again, we're doing a podcast, you know, we're taking time to talk about a book that was uh, made in 1992. That's how good it is. Well, and don't forget, we're also super fans and we're kind of geeks and nerds about this. So, of course, in true nerd fashion, we're going to tear it apart. Right, so, right, right, right. I do recognize that, but yeah, that's bullshit. <laughs> okay, well, well, do you want to start off or do you want me to start off about the, this particular chapter? All right, we'll flip a coin. All right, I flipped it, called it in the air. One, two, three, heads. Heads. Okay, there we go, you <laughs> <Yeah>, won. <asshole>. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> you stupid. So one of the things I like about, just right off the top, is the use of codes. Um, Michael Connolly, again, Listen to some of his interviews. He talked about being embedded with the LAPD. And right off the bat, the use of codes and how important it is in law enforcement life. Uh, the 187, um, how, to, you know, how he incorporated that when it came into the lingo and the different discussion Harry had with his coworkers, I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, I like that. Um, the way this book started out, um, I, I like the transition from... The boy graffiti artist, mm -hmm. he's, he's tagging something, something, a car pulls up, and then we instantly shift to Harry Bosch have waking up from a nightmare. And what that did for me is instantly it sucked me in because I wanted to know right then and there, hey, what's going on with this tagger? What did he see? Right. Is he okay? What's going on? But in the, in the same token, it showed the anxiety uh, or the repercussions of anxiety on a police officer and the nightmares that they go through. And what I found real, what was so realistic about this is I remember what it's like being on call, right. whether it's for a tactical unit or an investigative unit. It's you're on call, but Harry Bosch in this episode, he was off for the holiday weekend. Mm -hmm. But you're technically off, and I'm using air quotes, 
but you don't really get any solid rest because you think every phone call is going to be you to come right. in. So you take that with the anxiety of the job and you tie it in, you're not going to get any, any rest, any meaningful rest. Correct. So I related to that person. So right out the back, I'm like, well, okay, this, this may have some legs here. This book may be real. Well, so it intrigued me. Didn't you, didn't you like how he also described the, the, I think you talked uh, when we talked offline about the dust particles and uh, how they, you know, shimmered across this or shimmered across that. I thought that was pretty, you know, well, he sucked you into the world. It, it, he sucked you into the world. Yeah. His description was so rich and vibrant. I felt like I was there right. and I, I can remember that exact scene myself waking up in kind of a daze. I just had a dream. You're telling yourself, okay. That was a dream. This is real. But where the hell am I? Okay. I'm in my living room. Right. All right, cool. Right. Let's get everything straight. Right. Um, and it's just that on-call life. It's exciting. But the flip side to that is it, it's, it takes a lot out of yes. you. Um, but that was one of my observers. So let's, so let's just go back and forth. So I just, I like the one, I like the cold talk. Anything? What about you? But, you know, it, uh, I had mixed feelings. Like, as, a, as a rookie, and it's weird to say that, as a rookie, I was all into the codes. You know, I used codes for everything, going grocery shopping. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like everything was code for something. But then with the advent of the Internet and people catching on to the codes, it lost its lure to yeah. me because it's like everyone knew what it meant. Now, for efficiency purposes, when you're operational or just talking to a colleague, it definitely serves its purpose. But for me personally, the coolness factor wore off the minute, like, Joe Citizen understands all that stuff. It's right. like, yeah. Uh, right, hey? right. Because we were speaking yeah. our own language, and now, because it was special right. and unique with us, and then now yeah, it's I, not so unique and special anymore. No, right. it's like the internet ruined that right. for us. So I like the code stuff. You know, it's like I, I can summarize something in literally two codes and you know everything that's going on. It puts you on point for what you have to do as someone coming into my scene. Um, but now it's just, ah, it, it lost its, uh, well, its novelty for well, me. And also too, I mean, um, for those who are listening, while we use codes, it's because it gives us a tactical advantage also. Um, it's not just because it's sexy, but it does. It, it serves a functional purpose. It gives us a tactile advantage because we learn right off the bat. If you're, we don't like to react to people. We want them reacting to us. And um, I can throw a code to my um, my brother, and, and if I say, "Hey, look, um, that guy, we pulled somebody over, and, and it came back ten thirty three, he knows right off the bat what that means. You know, yeah, we're dropping everything. And we're coming. Right. We know we know what that means. So that's one of the things about the codes that I like. And again, Harry, pretty much. I mean, not Harry, but Michael Connolly actually did that. So enough about codes. Uh, another thing I liked about this book as he was going was the to talk about the pagers and beepers. And when they rolled to a roll call again, um, you know, um, this is 1992. You. Again, this reason keep bringing these things up, just again, especially in our first podcast, just to let you know how real and how authentic Michael Connolly had uh, portrayed the police world. And one of the things by, you know, I can remember when the police department gave me my first pager and I thought that 
<laughs> I was the shit. <laughs> That's funny. I thought that too. I th- I thought that about you. I was like, this cocky son of a bitch thinks he's so cool because you always seem to wear your pager <laughs> in a position where the whole room knew. Yeah, check me out. I got a pager. I'm cool. And I was just like, this motherfucker. Well, hey, get out of here. Get, I can be even more specific. I I I wore it right. I'm right-handed, and I wore the pager right in front of my my administrative holster because I'm a detective and I will put it right in front of that. <laughs> oh my God, this guy. Yeah. See, and then me started, you, you started out more in an investigative side as I started out in patrol answering 911 calls. So as a patrol officer, seeing you detectives do that, we just roll our eyes. Like, look at this guy. Man. He just, he, he thinks he's Don Johnson or something from Miami vice. He just thinks he's Joe. Cool. Right. Um, Let's see, keep going through the book, you know, just as, um, it, well, so, uh, I, I like to go back and forth with observances. What about you? What, what about observances do you? Well, I, one thing that just stuck out I, in the academy, going on the street, my progression as a police officer, I learned the importance of documentation and the, the centerpiece for any police officer is his notebook. And that's actually considered an official court document. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that stuck out to me about how authentic his writing is, um, Michael Connolly, is that is Harry's awakened from um, a dream mm-hmm. with a phone call slash pager. Right. And like I said, he was on call and he was the homicide detective that had to respond for the whole city. So he wakes up. It's the, um, the sergeant at the desk telling him he's got a call. He instantly grabbed his notebook and started documenting. Right. And it seems trivial right then. It's like, okay, today is May 20th. It's now 1535 hours. The weather is this, blah, 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 blah. It's so important to do that little bit because years later, someone will say, a defense attorney is going to say, well, how do we know that you could pull fingerprints from that scene? Wasn't it rainy that day? You can always refer back to your notebook. No, actually, on that day, it was bright and sunny. It was 80 degrees. It actually made it ideal to pull fingerprints. Right. So you can take that and shove it up your ass, Mr. Defense Attorney. So that's a, that stuck out to me. It's just a little snippet, but him capturing that action said a lot to me. It's boring. It's not sexy, right. but it's so important when you go to trial um, or have some administrative thing going on, that stuck out a lot to me. Hey, what did you, what did you like about, what did you think about the, um, the conversation between him and the, uh, the, the, the watch sergeant? Well, okay. So I know where you're going. See, <laughs> Phil's leading me. This is like what prosecutors do. They lead you down a certain <laughs> way. So the interaction between the desk sergeant and the detective was essentially, there's a body discovered in a pipe. And the sergeant's telling him this, the detective. The detective responds, snapping back at him, hey, you guys didn't fuck up my scene, did you? And the sergeant's like, well, hold on. How do you expect my guys to get into a pipe to find out if the body's alive or not? You know, we're, we have 30 calls stacked up. We have a call for an unconscious person, not a homicide. So the detectives are concerned about preserving the scene and the integrity of that. The patrol officer, the only thing he cares about is clearing the runs because the sergeant's on his back. So you have this back and forth. And I want to say both guys think their job's more important than the other because the, but they have like they have this borderline respect for each other but it's like this alpha male versus alpha male and we're going to bump heads but then eventually we'll come to a consensus so that um our podcast listeners i'm going to give you the real side of that conversation that's that's a biased 
side of the conversation as the uh, how is that bias i think i went right down the middle how the hell is that bias? you know what let's let's go here mr unbiased be, be, i want to hear this because, one because again we talked about this before uh because that sounds all nice and neat but i'm the one that has to explain to the prosecutor i'm the one that has to explain to the jury about why the crime scene was fucked up sorry you know and because now I have to go because I'm going to be the dick detective and say, hey, you know what, patrol officer? You went in there. Um, give me your boots for elimination prints. And you go, what? Yeah, you had to because now we had to have to go through and document and articulate and, and make account for every fingerprint footprint that's in there. And you're going to, and so they're going to then be mad at me because I have to be that guy. But if I don't be that guy. You can imagine the defense attorney says, well, Detective Parker, isn't it true that there was 12 uh, uh, boot prints at that scene? Yes, sir, it is. But your report, there's only 11. Could you explain that? Maybe that 11th one was the true killer. And it, so, but then I got to ask you to come over and say, give me your book, give me your boot print and or your fingerprint because you touched the trunk of the car or whatever, whatever. And so then you look at me, it's like that asshole detective. So I'm preserving because once, once patrol finishes, they usually don't see the case anymore. And I take it and I have to get this baby, this pile of shit, clean it up and get it ready for prosecution. Sorry. That's kind of funny because you said you were going to give an unbiased <laughs> straight view. And I don't know. Call me crazy. Seemed a little biased. What? So now let that me give biased? my unbiased. No, let me give my unbiased thing. My opinion <laughs> is that sometimes detectives' expectations are a tad unreasonable, and they forget what it's like to be in patrol. So with that, yes. Patrol officers answering 911 calls have to be a little bit more proactive as they approach a scene. Having said that, there are certain pressures that the patrol officer is under, too. When you have 60 911 calls backed up and people waiting for the service, we don't have the luxury in being able to levitate over a scene <laughs> to make an observation, levitate. you know, because that Jedi training is not part of the city budget. You know, we don't have that yet. So patrol officers as a whole do their best not to contaminate their scene, especially when it's perceived to be a routine check on the welfare of a drunk. Right. Remember, in this book, he's going to an area where there's a lot of homeless people that like to camp out in the pipe. So is it unreasonable to think that it's just a drunk guy up there sleeping? No. 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 Could he take, could the patrol officer arriving on the scene could he have done a better job? Probably. Okay, but probably. come on, there's yeah. some give and take back and forth. Okay. So, and the patrol officer has to understand, like, if you fuck up the scene, yeah, you're going to have to answer for that. And as a detective, I would put that back on the officer. I'm not going to shoulder that responsibility. Okay. But come on, let's, let's manage our expectations a little bit there, detective. <laughs> let's just do that, okay? okay? okay. Easy. So, like you said, okay. so right here, this five minutes of banter is essentially what the desk sergeant and Harry Bosch did. Right. They went back and forth like this. And meanwhile, there's a body in a pipe. So, Phil, shut the fuck up. Get in your car and let's get rolling. Call your partner. Let him know we got a body. Right. Let's go. Well, okay. Let's keep on rolling with that. Let's, you know, that, that then, that then uh, goes into Harry's partner. Um, yes. And him being, them both supposed to be on call, but uh, Edgar wasn't really on call. 
Well, what, what, what's the partner's name? But remember, we've got a Edgar for the Edgar. audience. Our yes. partner's name Edgar. is mm-hmm. right. So yeah, so Edgar realizing he's off for the weekend and he's on call. I'm using air quotes. You know, Definitely. he's 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 just trying to make a living and prepare for retirement. So he's moonlighting as a real estate agent and he had an open house. I mean these things happen. I well, because you know, yeah, then because cops get paid in the LAPD to prevent murder. Well, because yeah, cops get paid so much money, right? I mean they're right. They're millionaires, right? Oh yeah. Well here's well let's just make a side note for the listeners. I want the listeners to think about this. The police officers are tasked with protecting the city they can't afford to live right, in. but they can't afford to live in. Think about right. that. And the areas that they can afford to live in, it's not conducive to raising a family. But yet, they're asked to protect the city. Just, just something some, to think you know, about. What, That's my soapbox What moment. did we say? Uh, not, 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 a, not a sermon, just a thought? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, not a sermon. Just a just thought. thought. But go ahead. I'm so, but the city council will give themselves a pay raise. But anyway, let's not get started. Say, we, 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 we digress. But no, it's so, so good. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, so so Harry calls his partner and said, hey, partner, got a call, probably something routine, probably going to be a natural, but just to give you a heads up, I'm rolling to a scene. You might want to start hitting this way. Right. And Harry does the stand-up thing. He backs his partner up. It's like, I'll go handle it. Well, so, because the my, same sergeant kind of wanted to throw shade on, the, um, on Edgar by saying, yeah, I tried to call your partner, but yeah, he wasn't answering the phone. And Harry knew how to get in contact with his partner, which, again, this is pager time back then. So, um, you know, you got finding a pay. Phone right. You got to, right, to. You gotta kind of give them, you know, realistic expectations opposed to, you know, 2018 when it comes to the ease of contacting people. Right. Absolutely. So. Um, but yeah, that so that let me see what else can. Um, so, well, uh, Bosch arrives on the scene and again. One of the attributes that I love about Bosch is he is a bit of a smart ass. And coming from Well, I think we all are the by by definition. I think every cop is. Well, some of us a little bit more are better at it than <laughs> <Yes>. others. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and you know, I you know, I had to put my hand up. I have been I've, I've been a, a call accused of uh being smart ashes, if that's such a word. Um you're a dick. <laughs> How about just that? Which <laughs> I mean, Boy, I'm glad, no need to I'm glad you're my brother. <laughs> this is, right. This is all, oh, dude. I, look, that's why I'm holding back. Okay. <laughs> well, okay. Well, well, all right. Um. So yeah. So uh, Bosch gets there first, and you know when he's there, like I said, he's kind of being um anal because he hates the fact that everyone's now telling him look dude this is a nine to fiver which means don't put too much work into this why are you putting it's just a dead body in the um like my brother just said like alan just said uh where homeless people go or or drunk drunk people go or they call hypes and that's a that's a uh again not to assume that you understand what that means but that is a a lingo with cops use for people who use hypodermic needles, hype, and it, which they use the hypodermic needle to administer the illicit narcotic they, they, of choice. And usually some type of opioids is that type of drug of choice. But, and it appeared to be an overdose. So why are you working hard on this, Harry? So Harry's like, dude, I'm, <laughs> I'm getting tired of everyone telling me to, it's just a nine to fiver. And so, um, 
that that set the tone right then and there. He wakes up. He's already on. Uh, he's already on tilt a little bit because he he got into it with the sergeant. He gets on. And the sergeant says, "Hey, it's a nine to five. He gets on the scene and he sees Donovan. Donovan is the um, the crime scene tech, and he's like, "Hey, it's a nine to fiver. So everyone's going in there. So um, everyone's already against Harry for assuming that it's a nine to five. But I can tell you right now, if I had a loved one or someone I cared about in the situation, give me that smart ass Harry Bosch to investigate the crime. Well, and it also goes to, and I've been guilty of it. Everyone has, you, you can't jump to conclusions no matter what. And you never know when there could be foul play or something nefarious involved. And like you said, you never know when it could be your loved one. So you would want your loved one treated with the respect and care and diligence um, that you would expect from a police officer. Well, it, and, no, I'm sorry. No, no, go so ahead. In, in one of the things that cops get ap- accused of is predetermining. And it's very easy to do, but we predetermine the outcome of the investigation and investigate the crime to justify that particular outcome. Our own collusion. Right. Yeah. And so what Harry's saying and what is hard to do, I mean, and it takes, you have to consciously do it every time you get an investigation. Assume, just let the, let the facts lead you where you need to go, opposed to saying. Despite what you see. No, instead of just saying, yeah, the guy's in a pipe. Um, who cares about him? He's disheveled and he has a hypodermic needle in his arm. It's just overdose. Why are we, why are we putting too much into it opposed to just let the facts in the end as this, as this book develops, it, it comes out to be, there's a lot of things that are not right with the scene and Harry, yeah. Harry picks, he picks it out and he notices these things that aren't right with the scene, which then that's what he's doing. That's what you want a good detective to do is to let the scene guide the investigation. Yeah. And you know, police officers, in, in human nature, yeah, I think nature, they tend yeah. to they tend to build a narrative around their own perceptions of what they thought happened instead of looking at the facts, build the narrative for them. So it's right. like I see incident A happen and I'm convinced that happened. So now I'm going to build a narrative right. to support that as a as opposed to just letting the facts build that narrative. And that can be dangerous and that it, it tends to come out in trial. Oh, and that's yeah. what you want to. Avoid. Yeah, it does. Uh, and one of the things I wanted to touch on before we get too sure. far is, and again, when he arrived on the scene, uh, Michael Connolly did such an effective job describing the scene mm-hmm. with the sights, the smells, that actually at one point I felt like I was there. And again, it just speaks to his talent on, on his ability to write and actually capture the moment and suck you in. Yes, definitely. And uh, that's, is that where, as this interaction was going back and forth, uh, one of the things I really like to, uh, if I ever get an opportunity, at this juncture of this book, when did Michael have an opportunity? When did he know he was going to write other books? Because he put the Easter, he, eggs. Easter eggs. He put Easter eggs right in here. And again, for for your listeners, again, we're going to try to stay away from spoilers, but um, you know, we're going to as much as possible. You know, I'm not going to say, "Hey, it was Mr. Mud in the coat closet with the with the knife," but you know, right. but I'm going to, we're going to try to stay away from. It. But one of the things. He talked about this, you know, the chemical smells of, um, of the fruit flies, you know, with the helicopters dropping, you know, trying to eradicate these fruit flies, which is a direct correlation to the next book. And I like to know 
one of the things but because Michael dropped these Easter eggs all over the place, and I would like. But I think it's like the w- way you just described that. I don't think that spoils it for the listener. I think that just makes the listener more intrigued okay. to go, "Oh, okay, now I need to." How is that relevant? It makes them more eager to get to the next book to see how he ties all that or, in. Or you know, for me, it was the aha. You know, especially uh, going yeah, back now. You know, I think. Oh my goodness! I can't even count. There are so many moments like right, that. Right, but I've, I've probably read all the books, maybe at least twice, if not more. You know, at least well, twice. Now, see, you've read all the Harry Bosch books, but you haven't read all the books in his whole world. Like I just had Correct. got you on Void and right. Moon, and then there's Chasing the Dime that you, that there's some correlations Correct. there Correct. too. So yeah, thank you for the clarification because we do want to be be clear. I specifically just stay with. Only the books that Harry Bosch were involved in until my bro said, hey, look, um, did you read um, The Void Moon? I'm like, no, nah, that didn't have anything to do with Harry. He goes, nope, nope, you might. Mm, 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 no, mm, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, that, and then Chasing the Dime. There's so many, all these books are, the Michael Conley world goes just beyond Harry Bosch. And that's what I found frustrating with the whole Amazon series because there's so much rich content that can all play off of each right. other. They literally... At the minimum, have ten years of material there. Right, minimum, minimum. if they do it right. Well, I mean, I mean so it, it, we are available for consultations right. if they want to bring us on as consultants. And uh, Game of Thrones already proved it. So, yeah, um, yeah. Let me see. So, oh, um, I also well, since we still he's still at the scene, and we're talking to, um, he's he gets in conversation with uh, Mr. Sakai, Larry Sakai, and you can tell that is not a good relationship because again, our boy. Is an asshole, <laughs> and we said it's kind of hard, right? We no, we said I would say it in a more affectionate way. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't mind being his partner, you know. So, and I don't think you would either, you know, because you know we, we don't we're not afraid to work, and no. I think that's one of the things Harry hates is people being lazy, um, and people not putting take, cutting corners, right, taking pride into their work or their craft. So, um. But again, well, that's the other thing, too. You'll learn as the series goes on, Harry's not the one that just throws charges on people. He really does take to heart his responsibility for upholding justice right. and administering it. You know, he doesn't want to just lock up someone for the sake of locking them up. He, he wants to lock up the guy that did right. it. And that's that's important because especially in today's time, there, there's so much animosity towards police officers. This book reflects the true nature of most cops and most cops out there want to do do right and just bring evildoers to justice. Not to be too cliche. What did, what did you think about how Edgar just happened to show up after Bosch came from inside the... Wait, no, back up. Um, one of the things that, again, just and if I uh, when we do this, I'm going to uh, we're going to have like a, a blog post on the website that you can comment on so we can get better. But one of the things that uh, I like, again, authenticity is his jumpsuit, because one of the first things I got when I became a detective is they gave me a jumpsuit because we wear suits and tie. But someplace you got to go and you have to go in places that um, that aren't the most sanitary, the most clean place to 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 uh, go into so um you know he he goes into the um he goes into the uh, tunnel sees the body and he comes out and edgar happens to show up <laughs> right. that, coincidence that's typical 
<laughs> well, you know, it's like you, <laughs> Edgar knows he's going up into a dirty environment. Edgar's probably it's like, well, I could go route A or I could go route B, right. and I'm going to stop for every light right. and let every pedestrian cross. And if there's an old lady with a flat tire, hey, I got to stop and help right. her. And it's, you know, people, people do that, but car. <laughs> Karma's funny. There, there's a way that that all evens itself right. out. So, and, and but one of the other things. No, no. Oh, well, again, Edgar. Let's, let's get a visual. Edgar is a well because he's a realtor, and he has. Um, you have two really distinctive. Again, in my just in my world, two distinctive investigators. You have investigators with the two thousand dollars suits. The pretty boys. The pretty boys. And they got the Hugo Boss and they got the um, the Fedora hats. And yep. you know, they, they go to court. I mean, I know some detectives who wardrobes will blow the uh, Kim Kardashian's robes uh, her her wardrobe away. I mean, they yep. can go probably two weeks without um <laughs> repeating this suit. Yeah. Or you have some cops, you know, like me, I was a Mitch and Max guy. I'm like, okay, that black pants can go with that brown jacket, and that, that. and so you have two type of Edgar happens again, and again, that's you know, good, bad, or different. That's the type of uh, cop that Edgar is when it comes, at least when it's uh, dress, it's dress and it's apparel. Yeah, I and the, I lean more towards the rough around the edges guy versus the the pretty guy. Right. You know, I I actually knew some detectives that got manicures. And oh yeah, had the clear. It's just like Jesus Christ, what the hell are we doing here? Um, you know, there's one thing too. Before Edgar got on the scene, there was a jogger with headphones <laughs> trying to jog through yes. the crime yes. scene, and that just irks the shit out of me because you have these oblivious citizens that mm -hmm. would just come up and screw up your scene. And then I just became a smart ass at that point. You know, we have this police tape. Uh, you have the yellow blanket over a body or something. And then a citizen would come up and, well, what's going on? And I would always respond like, well, look, there's a 50-foot alligator we found in the sewer. And we're just waiting for, you know, National Geographic to get here to film it. Really? And then I just like, oh, my God, I can't <laughs> believe I'm actually doing this with these citizens. Right. So. It's it's frustrating, and it's we are humans. You know, you have to maintain this level of professionalism. But then, when you're exposed to people that have no, no common sense whatsoever, correct. it it wears on you. It's like, yeah, the smart ass starts to come out of me. Again, because I don't want to jump ahead too. Also, I like the fact that um, I wonder how would you feel when when Bosch was in the tunnel and looking at the body, he recognized that tattoo. The tattoo that he had, I thought, um, like shit. N now it became, I think, it, it became personal. Um, Probably, yeah, it, it became personal. So, again, still let the facts let still let the facts fall as they may, but now it's personal. So, but see, that's just that's just one of the challenges that per police officers and first responders are faced with routinely is. You're you're in a city that you patrol daily. You're bound to have a personal relationship right. with a situation, right. whether you're pulling over your mom's best friend or a high school mate committed suicide. And that's again another challenge that speaks to the level of professionalism that's required of police officers, because the normal citizen might not be able to fight through mm -hmm. that, but it's expected for the police officer to fight through I that. Agree. 
um, keep keep going on. Uh, at that point, they um, they ask Bosch asks everyone to te- the crime scene text. Uh, he gets into it with Sakai and asks for you know what they call the first cut. You know, or get on the list because everyone wants to call this a nine to five, and we already explained what that is. But he's like, dude, there's something going on. There's no scuff marks. Uh, there's scuff marks on the guy's boots. There's no tracks going in or out of the place. The 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 um there yes there is a hypodermic um, needle, um but now he recognizes who the guy is, and I think he and by this time he gets out there and he tells um Edgar, hey, run the name for William Meadows, and you know, and so he he recognized that that I know that guy, I know him. So, um, him and Sakai gets into it. And and yet again, he's not he's not above uh, fighting with Sakai to get on to the um, get ahead of people so they can get a, a quick autopsy. So it's not just lingering around. And you know you can't discount Sakai's experience too Correct. as an ME. So Sakai knows his he knows what he's doing to some level, and he thinks Bosch is being overzealous, and yet there's other jobs that he has to go on. So it's like, dude, are you just going through all this because you want to showboat? This is ridiculous. So you have that professional banter back and forth, and it can be frustrating, and it's 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 hard to turn that aspect of your relationship on and off with someone because when you're off duty, you, you still have to work with these guys. Right. And it's like, how do you keep that in check without it seeping into your personal life? Too? Well, you see, it's kind of like where we, how we started with the thing with the patrol officer and the detective. And I totally get just like what you, and Shakai actually told him and you actually alluded to it. He has so many other bodies he has to pick up. And he has to prioritize. You're like, dude, come on. You know, this looks like it looks like what it is. Now, as we as it determined, it isn't. But right off the surface, you do have to allocate your uh, and manage your resources. And you wish that you could do so, you know, all every check, every box and cross every T and dot every I for every person. But, you know, resources are limited, you know, so we don't have unlimited resources. Um, But um. But they weren't. Um, Bosch was not um, above fighting Sakai to make sure he he gets in a decent uh, cut time, opposed to be put in the back of the line. Right, and, I, and they, you know, those medical examiners like, look, this isn't the Hindenburg kidnapping, right. so just relax. Well, guys. See, again, <laughs> ultimately, and you can again, you know, I'm, we both have different uh, points of views here, but ultimately, who's responsible for that crime scene? It's going to be the detective that assumes control. Exactly. Right? So if he didn't do everything or at least request it, the first thing some supervisor or some defense attorney is going to say, well, detective, I understand there's limited resources, but did you at least right. do, you know, you know, and then. The basics. Exactly. Right. So, uh, before he left the crime scene, you know, uh, again, which is important to observe, not just the immediate, but your surroundings, um, you would be amazed. People don't believe it. This is Hollywood. Criminals do come back to the scene of crime because <laughs> they want to. They want to know what's going on. Um, it's that paranoia. Right. But so the, the the criminal didn't leave, but Bosch did notice a fresh um, graffiti tag that looked like it was not finished. And again, that's going to play. Um, uh, the reason I'm pointing out because that's going to play an important part of the. Um, uh, the storyline. So, and that goes back to the note taking. Everything. Don't assume it's not relevant. 
just note everything. Hey, there's a tag over there that wasn't finished. Hey, there's a soda can here. Print that. Take a photograph. Oh, look, there's a cigarette butt there. Wait a minute. There's tracks here. Do the, it's, don't assume it's not relevant. You, you don't know how this is going to happen right. or play out a year from now or two years from now. Right. All of it's relevant in, until the case closes. Um, yep. So again, we're just moving along and again, just getting our observance of you know, so far the book. I like the fact, again, going back to his authenticity, how, they, how Harry, <clears throat> Bosch and Edgar split, uh, split um, responsibilities. Duties. Yeah, yeah. and he asked Edgar to go to, well, Edgar, of course, found the location of where uh, Meadows lived. And um, he, uh, he lived into, well, he, one thing that was really important, he told his partner right then and there, I recognize this guy. And he didn't hide the fact that he recognized this guy. And they talked about how it can, because if you don't tell your partner what, you know, some of the things you're thinking about, then later on, someone could possibly think, why are you hiding? Especially if you know somebody. Um, yeah. And with the level of scrutiny police officers are under, you, you, you don't want to be perceived as hiding anything. Right. So, um, they, so the, the story moved forward and they then go to um, Meadow's apartment. And while there, it's getting some observables then then make you think and even now edgar is believing there's something not right here Harry. there's something i thought at the scene you know but maybe we are on our maybe we are on to something and the fact is that the apartment is rented out to a a fields not a metals you know a play on the word the fact of the matter is that um the the that's hilarious yeah 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 and, and the fact of the matter is that the landlord said that he paid his rent, but he didn't pay it in a year in advance. He paid his, he paid his rent something like, uh, I, I can't remember, was it six, nine months, you know, or some odd number, or 11 months away. Like he was already anticipating leaving. So that thought that was pretty, again, those are just investigative clues that there's nothing overly uh, overt about them. But when you start adding them all together, it does, you, you kind of then go, aha, it makes a good aha moment. Right. And then don't forget what else did he discover there? There was uh, was a broken photo on the ground. Well, yeah, no. First, Edgar had noticed that the place was tossed. Right. You know, he said, "Hey, you know, Harry, you know, they're looking like this place was tossed." And based on the fact that it was tossed, that's when Harry discovered, you know, the um, a lot of a lot of clues like the dust, the dirt that was in the closet, the um, the, the shattered glass picture picture frame with his. Um, with his uh, picture on there, and he also found the uh, pawn ticket. Of um, so, the fact of the matter that the pawn ticket was hidden, and the place was searched, kind of like, huh? I wonder why was this what they were looking for? Right. What relevance is that? And that just it's just it plays on one thing leads to the next thing, but you have to run these things down appropriately or they become not admissible in court. So that's that fine line that cops have to, to walk. You have to keep pursuing where the evidence takes you, but you have to do it in the right manner. Otherwise, it's, it's all not admissible. It is. And I think this is at the time when, him, when Harry and Edgar then comes up, come up and make like an investigative agreement, which happens all the time. You know, I would say, hey, Alan, um, okay, look, I'll knock out this. But tomorrow, could you handle court or could you handle the witness debriefing? You're like, sure. So 
you can go home now, go home now, and then get some sleep, and I'll handle the rest. So those type of arrangements happen all the time with, with partners. Right. And you know what? That just makes you more effective because you're dealing with something that could be potentially time sensitive. And if you throw all those tasks on one person the shoulder, one, something could be overlooked. And two, you're not going to be as efficient or fast. Correct. Remember, we're, we have a potential killer on the loose. So we need to run this down as quickly as possible. Definitely. And let's, again, we're just just picking out some things that, that I love that I love, but that I thought was observable. Um, oh, the ride by to the uh, to the uh, pawn shop. What was the name of the um, the Happy Hanukkah? Yeah, the, again, I, I, uh, I think Bosch just on a whim just say, well, let me go buy this pawn shop because here's this, here's this pawn bracelet with metals pawn this very expensive uh, item. Um, the fact is, like I said, uh, I don't think his keys were his keys were not with him when he was in the metals uh, when he was in the pipe. Um, so now that I don't, I don't remember. remember. I don't think mm. he was. I don't think he was. And then uh, so he goes by there and he meets up with. And again, things just start putting are putting together really quickly. All of a sudden, he's he he gets there to the pawn shop, and the pawn shop had a burglary. And again, one thing that cops we hate is coincidences because we don't believe in coincidences. There's no such right? thing. Yeah. yeah, we just haven't figured out why, what, why. Just because we didn't figure it out doesn't mean that it, it, it there's uh, no coincidence behind it. Right. Absolutely. And so I think um, Bosch shows a picture of the proprietor of that ha- Happy Hanukkah, and he confirms that he did um, that he did um, sell or pawn a, a bracelet. And he wanted to get the bracelet, but the bracelet happened to be stolen. <laughs> and so the cool thing that, that Bosch did, he was able to find uh, that the owner, Mr. Uh, Obana, he did have a, um, he had a picture of the bracelet. Um, and so, it, it, again, it, so look at, look at when we first started out. Again, if he didn't do some due diligence, we started out, Edgar goes by there. He, if he assumed this was a nine to five, look where we would not be. And look so far how fast and the, the investigative leads are, are starting to pile up on this. You know, now is it just a, is it just a, um, uh, a dead over a overdose or is it just, did this guy get killed? Right. And so, yeah. And so then again, we, we you know, so he fast forward, we keep on going. Um, well, one of the things that stuck out to me as, as this case is starting to unravel and get legs, as we say, is when Edgar went to get the 911 tapes and it was discovered that it was probably a boy, not a man, that made this call. And that's when you start having these aha moments right. where it's like, well, wait a minute, we have an unfinished tag mm-hmm. and we have a 911 call with a young voice. Now their scope of narrowing down witnesses becomes more finite. It's like you have this broad general assumption, you have a witness that called 911. Well, how do you filter? And, and start to develop leads. And this is one of the first steps in, in chasing down your first witness. Well, yeah. And, and I think even that the first witness, because he had to go, I like the interaction. And again, um, uh, Michael left some little breadcrumbs with that. I love the interaction that he had with um, the new detective at Robbie, Robbie Homicide, because he goes to Robbie Homicide. Well, he goes down to headquarters to pick up the 911 tape. And while he's there, he goes into his old office, the Robbie Homicide Division, which is the cream, the, the top t- 
tier. Inve- their SEAL team Right, six. their investigative uh, team for LAPD. And he encounters his replacement, pretty much, his replacement, who's a straight-up dick. Well, you know, and, and to give more context, too, Harry was one of the top investigators in the robbery homicide, uh, RHD, as was referred to in L.A. Um, and for him to be kicked out of the unit for a prior case and how that case turned out, which will be revealed later, but still had the professionalism. Essentially, he got demoted. Yeah, he So did. after being demoted, he demoted right. he's still operating at a high level, right. which speaks, again, he is a smartass, he's an asshole, but he's still a top professional. And I think that goes to uh, Michael Connolly's ability for proper character development. Right. I'd love that. I do, too. I do, too. Um, then he goes, uh, let me see. Well, while he's there, he then follows up uh, with the old um, teletype and goes to the pawn sheet. Um, it's so funny because I remember seeing these for the first time. Everything's so computerized now. But he goes on the, the Bolo, the lookout, and he actually. What does Bolo stand for? Remember, be, let the that's people right. know what that's right. Be saying. on the lookout. Okay. So thank you very much. Um, no problem. So he actually finds. Uh, connection between the, uh, the bracelet and a um, burglary of a uh, of the Westland National Bank of a bank, and so now these puzzles and pieces are really starting to come together. But he didn't remember it happening. And again, again, Michael gives you this these breadcrumbs to there's something more, some more backstory that went on because like uh, the reader is is led to believe like what is going on? What because I think Harry says something to the effect of I don't remember. I should have remembered that something like that would have happened. Um, it would have been national news forever and come to find out he put it two and two together that he was, um, he has been serving. He was on, on his, um, a suspension for, yeah. for, for, uh, uh, the doll maker case that he, that he called it, but he called his old friend, um, um, Brimmer, um, at the, uh, at the times, um, oh, that's so Joel funny. Brennan. Just thinking about yeah. that, yeah. And all of this gets played out in the third book, The Concrete Yes, Bond, it does. Which is going to throw the readers through. Yes, it, it, oh, that's exciting. It, it's hard to stay focused when you know that what's going right. to happen. So, um, but again, you, you, you're talking about the 90s, what early 90s at that. And so he had to ask, ask Bremer, and again, all cops, we all had, it was a give and take. We used each other. Um, Reporters used us, and we use reporters. And, and any cop who does say he didn't have a number to a reporter, he's uh, come on. Well, then he wasn't doing too yeah. much investigations. Um, right. But he wasn't a police, right? Right. <laughs> and so he had this relationship with Bremer, and he asked Bremer to pull the quote unquote clips, which means anything and everything. The the clips um, for the 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 watch the Times uh, reference to that West La, that, that bank, and I think. Brimmer's reaction to it kind of said, Bosh, like, okay, I'm really on to something. Um, but he told him, hey, if I get something, which is true, we make these deals all the time with, um, with um, um, reporters, thank you. And, you know, so, well, just give me the clips. If I got something, you'll be the first to know. And so, yeah, he, he, so, but, but he did tell him that right now it was, it was a tunnel job and that the FBI was a uh, lead uh, investigation of that. So. Um, right, and so here you go. You have someone from Bosch's former military unit who's a tunnel rat. 
you have uh, uh, two million dollars worth of jewelry that was stolen mm -hmm. like a year ago, and now you have a dead tunnel rat. It's like, well, wait a right. minute, <laughs> wait, wait a minute, right. what's going on here? This something doesn't make sense. And while he was at the robbery homicide, again, this skin as the chapter winds down, while he was at the hum, um, robbery homicide, he gets a phone call from Salazar, who was the uh, is the medical examiner who is doing the autopsy on Meadows' body. And he said, hey, look, um, I, talked to, I talked to Larry, I talked to Sakai, and he said something was hinky. And I love how Harry described it. He said, yeah, we don't call it hinky anymore, but in, in his mind. Yeah, soon, right. so it's just like what you said about um, uh, codes. You know, once the, the normal citizens got it, it kind of, it, they kind of played out a little bit. But um, I think during the, during the, um, during the uh, autopsy, uh, Salazar confirmed that it was a broken finger that was post-death. And he also confirmed that uh, Meadows um, it had stun gun marks on his, on his torso, which looked like he was possibly tortured. Right. So again, this doesn't look like a hype or a guy that just OD'd. There's, there's more to it. Right. Because who tases themselves and says, you know what? <laughs> I can't take it anymore. Right. <laughs> I'm going to tase myself and right. then just shoot up. And as we as we close out this chapter, uh, one was again one of the things that you pointed out that was so um, what's the word I'm looking for that you that 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 was not inspiring but kind of brought something to life for you was the fact of how he described because then it goes back into uh, um, Bosch goes back into remembering how it was to be in a tunnel, and it, he 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 um, rec recalls an event that was so traumatic to him that brought him to tears. Again, it shows you the human side of this detective who so far has been a smart ass, sarcastic, pushy guy, but now he's back at his apartment and he's wrought with, um, with um, anguish that, you know, remembering what happened back in Vietnam that brought him to tears. Well, yeah. And it just speaks on how these guys have to fight through the PTSD and as they're fighting through that, they're still enduring things that can activate it. So it's like, what, what's asked of these first responders is a lot. And it's funny you brought up the whole thing about the light in the tunnel, because here I am, I'm seven, no, I think I'm eight books later, mm -hmm. um, the darkness more than light. The light is still relevant many books down. Right. And it's like, wow, this, it's Michael Conley, his... His mind is freaky. It's amazing. He's a talented writer. Okay. Well, that's a wrap for our, we, we call this segment a roll call. And so we, that's a wrap on the, on the roll call. All right, Alan. So I like to call this segment, Everyone Counts or No One Counts Moment. And again, um, not to assume that the readers understand what that means, but that becomes Harry's um, tag, for a better word, his, his mantra, for, a better, for lack of a better uh, description, is everyone counts or no one counts. So I like to do, as we do on a review of these chapters, do you have an event that took place in this chapter so far, so far that you could point to that that was like a everyone counts or no one counts moment it, it would have to be his initial assessment of the scene when he first got there it 
before he thought there was a homicide, before he made any observations, just the general attitude of the patrol officers and the medical examiner, with them being so reluctant to proceed with like a full-on investigation, he's the one that initiated mm-hmm. and, and dug his heels in and said, no, no, we're going to investigate this to the T as if, you know, uh, the Kennedy assassination just happened in front of us. And that's right. important. And I think okay. the public needs to be reassured Basically, most cops are like that. So that just reemphasizes that point there. Okay. Well, my anyone counts or no one counts moment actually was Edgar. Um, Because, uh, yeah, I like Edgar. Well, because what happened was, remember, Bosch kind of threw a little jab at him for not showing up because Bosch pretty much says, hey, look, um, don't worry about it. You can get back to your open house. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of a and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. See, so, but Edgar goes, look, I do my job. I do my job. I do what I get paid for. And after, to, just to tell Bosch, look, just because, you know, you think that you're better, not better, but you're more dedicated than me, doesn't, doesn't mean that because I sell houses that I'm not as dedicated to do my job. And again, in, in the same, because I'm looking for different nuances to say, to me, Edgar kind of, you know, stood up to himself and said, hey, also, everyone counts or no one counts. Because he could have just took it easily and said, whatever. Right. I'm, I'm here. I gave up my part-time I'm, job yeah. to do my job. So don't question me right. or my integrity right. and my level of commitment. Right. I could see that. That's solid. Yeah. Yeah. So, so again, that, that segment was called Everyone Counts the, or No One Counts. The, to put a cap on it, too. Just because sure. what I hold is my personal standard doesn't mean that your standards any less or any more than mine. We all have our own personal standard. And I think that's to, to piggyback what you said. Yeah. That's what Edgar was saying. Yeah. Just because it's not Harry Bosch's standard doesn't mean that my standards any less worthy. I like that. Right. That's solid. Okay. All right. High five. I like that too. Right. Solid. Okay. <laughs> high five. High five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, high five. <laughs> Stupid. Okay. Alan, uh, I think that's going to be it for us for this episode. Uh, I want to thank everyone for tuning in to us. And um, I, I hope you can pick up on us or follow up uh, our next podcast, which is going to be The Black Echo Part 2, Monday, May 21st. Um, uh, I want to first say thanks to Michael Connolly. Thanks for my my partner. Oh, no, you told me not to say call you your partner. I forgot about that. No, I'm not your, not, you know what? You can call me your partner. I'll go back and forth. I don't know yet. I don't know. We have to see what the crowd thinks. Okay, yeah, you know what? That's one of those things we'll leave out for the people. Do you like partner or it's a work or, in progress? Or co-host, work in progress. Right, this yeah, is, it's a work thing. in so, progress. But you know, we want to thank Michael Connolly for the books and um, again for this inspiration, of this podcast. Mike, um, partner, you want to say anything to the people? Yeah, I would actually like to say on a serious note, thank you so much for being patient with us and and joining us on this journey. I think it's really exciting. There's a lot of content here. Uh, if you like The Wire on HBO, Michael Connolly is going to take that and go leaps and bounds. So thanks again for listening in. Looking forward to the uh, next episode, and I hope you join us. All right. With that, we're going to be 10-7 in police lingo since I told you I like codes, and uh, we'll see you later. Well, hey, hey, no, whoa, 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 whoa. What, what, what? If, what? if you're, you got to say I'm 10-7 for the remainder. Oh, you know what? That's why I love you. Okay, yeah, so you, yeah. go, I'm a, you do it then. You said you sound better than me. You sound more sexy. Okay, I sound, <clears throat> for my <laughs> sexy voice. Here you go. <laughs> this is Alan and Philip Parker signing off. We're ten seven for the remainder. 
Bye. Bye.